This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. When the Writers Guild of America went on strike earlier this month, we saw the effect immediately on the late-night comedy institutions, which went dark right away. This show uh, will be interrupted, and we won't be here to spend time with you. But as the strike goes on, the future of many scripted shows will also become uncertain. At issue is the revenue generated by streaming services. On the one end of the bargaining table, the big studios don't seem inclined at all to capitulate to the WGA's demands. The last time the Writers Guild hit the picket line, it was 2007, and that strike carried over into the following year and lasted 100 days. It reportedly cost the city of Los Angeles hundreds of millions of dollars. And this year's strike has the potential to last even longer. Once the studios broke our business, we've been left with crumbs, and we have to say no to that. We have to stand up together, and we are united. Staff writer Michael Shulman has been covering the strike for The New Yorker, and he recently spoke to Laura Jackman, a veteran TV writer and a strike captain, about the stakes. Well, tell me about what the scene is like on the picket line. Where were you picketing? I was mostly at Amazon slash Culver Studios this week. So you, you're passing both studio people and you're passing just people on their way to lunch. And uh, it's electric. The mood is electric. You know, we're walking in circles, but we're also getting cars honking at us as we pass. We're doing our chants. The solidarity has been incredible to see and to experience. So getting a little more serious about what this strike is actually about, when we spoke a week or two ago, you said this is an existential fight for the future of the business of writing. And if we do not dig in now, there will be nothing to fight for in three years. What do you mean by that? So we're on strike for a fair deal from the studios that is going to allow us to share in the success of the content we create and something that makes writing a sustainable career. It has been chipped away at, is one way of putting it, eviscerated 
is another way of putting it. So this month marks my 10-year anniversary in the Guild. I'll have been a Guild member for 10 years in just a couple weeks. And I've seen the offers for staffing go from 20 weeks extendable to 15 weeks, 12 weeks, 10 weeks, 8, 7, 6. So the same amount of television is still being written, the same amount of television is still being produced, but they're asking us to write more of it in a shorter time period for significantly less money. And that, I think, is the thing that really represents the threat to our business overall. And how does that translate in terms of how a writer makes a sustainable living? Like if you, it seems like it used to be when you were on, you know, a network show, you had a 22 episode season and you were basically employed for an extended period of time and then you get residuals. Um, This doesn't seem like that at all. No, our, our structure of compensation used to be that you were getting paid to do the writing in the writer's room. You were getting paid to cover prep, production, and post-production. And then on the back end, you were getting something called residuals, which is the money that you make as long as the studio is still making money off of that content. So any rerun that you see on television, um, you know, months or years after the fact, a writer is getting paid for that. Those are things that we struck for. And they have sort of said, okay, now that we're all streaming, now that we've broken the business of how your compensation works, we're going to ask you to accept a lesser residual or almost no residual. We're not going to pay to have writers cover prep, production, and post-production. And we're going to whittle down these rooms into something called mini rooms. Right, mini so that rooms we're employing I've you. been hearing a ton about. Um, yes. Can you explain what those are, what that means, mini room? <laughs> uh So there is no such thing as a mini season of television, right? When we watch a season of television, we're watching a beginning, middle, and end, whether that's eight episodes, 10 episodes, or 22 episodes. And they're saying, we want the same amount of episodes. We want a full season, but we want you to do it way faster. And we want you to sort of come in, give give us a blitz of content and scripts, and then we're going to cut off your pay. Now, this is very different than the concept of the television writer's room that I think a lot of people thought existed. And I want to go back and talk about your earliest experiences working in TV. So you came out to Hollywood about 10 years ago, right? Can you tell me a bit about what brought you there and what your first job was like? Uh, My first job was an ABC Studios, ABC network show called Lucky 7. And the process of getting staffed is... You know, you pay on your own dime to fly out to L.A. You do a water bottle tour. So you go around, you take all these meetings with studios and networks and producers and showrunners. And then hopefully at the end of it, you have an offer to staff. So that's what it was like for me. I spent weeks doing these meetings. And then at the end of it, I had less than five days to pick up my whole life. Which fly out to where? Los Angeles. I was in Chicago at the time. Working as a playwright, right? Working as a struggling playwright, working as a bro, you know, working. I say that that's in generous <laughs> terms, right? Working, trying as a playwright. Uh, and uh, it was come out to Los Angeles, find a second apartment to sublet because I still had my place in Chicago. 
and then sit in a room with a bunch of lovely people and break a series of television together. And it was exactly what a writer's room experience is supposed to be. Um, unfortunately, we got canceled after our second airing. We got canceled after our second episode. It's the full Hollywood experience for me inside of 20 weeks. Um, <laughs> but it was the it was the old model, which recognized that not only are we being compensated for our labor in the moment, but we're being trained for the future. We're being trained as up-and-coming showrunners on our own. Right. So in the intervening 10 years, a lot has changed about the TV industry. And one of the things seems to be that it's a lot harder for writers to get experience to uh, to be on set. Can you explain sort of how that has changed? So part of that is because of the mini room. If you're only employing writers for six weeks, first of all, those scripts are not done. Those scripts are not locked and those scripts are not ready to shoot after six weeks. Many, many more things have to happen after that. And often it's on individual showrunners to be writing and revising those scripts on their own for weeks or months before prep starts in earnest. So the shorter the room, the farther apart it's separated from the process of production, uh, the smaller the chance that those writers who wrote those episodes will get to engage in the full process of production. Right. Uh, now, you're not only uh, a longstanding member of the Guild, but you've also been a, uh, a contract captain and now a strike captain. So you've been talking to a lot of members. Can you tell me about sort of what you're hearing from people and what, what you were hearing for from people before the strike was called? Like, what's what's the mood? What are people bringing up when you talk to them? The word that I would use in the lead up is desperation, that, that people are really desperate. And um, it has become what once was a path to a middle class career has really become a sort of moonshot that people are falling through the cracks, that they're not able to ascend that ladder, that they're not able to make a career out of this. And after three years of COVID, going on four years of COVID, I think the American public, I think the world has seen the companies are reaping um, massive profits off of the value of labor. And our labor is standing up and saying, not on our backs. You got to compensate us. You got to pay us fairly. Now, in terms of how long this is going to go on, the previous WGA strike in 20, 2007 to 2008 was 100 days. The one before that in 1988 was over 150 days. But the conditions are different this time. And people like Ted Sarandos from Netflix have said, well, basically, you know, we have a, a big backlog of stuff, we can just roll that out. And so there's a feeling that the studios might have more leverage than they even had previously and can kind of wait this out. Do you think that's true? And 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 what do you see happening? When do you see this kind of hitting hitting the point of of, you know, we have no shows to left to, to show? So they say a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> they say a lot of stuff. They they tell us that they can't afford the cost of us. And simultaneously, they're on their public earnings calls, trumpeting bright financial futures to their shareholders. So they say a lot. And then we see that what they say might not be completely true. What I can tell you is we are shutting down productions daily. We are halting productions and plans for production daily. We are turning back Teamster trucks 
Local 399, we owe a huge debt to that they are driving up to the studio gates, they are seeing our picket lines, and they are waving and turning away. The brave IATSE members, right, who are not getting paid for that day that they were supposed to work, are seeing our picket lines and turning around. And the fact is, is that we are not alone this time. Every single Hollywood Guild and Union has come out in solidarity. The DGA, SAG-AFTRA, IATSE, the laborers, the plasterers, the teamsters, they were all with us at the membership meeting at the Shrine Auditorium on Wednesday. And the Shrine has these old wooden floors, and people were stomping, people were clapping. It was ovation after ovation, because we recognize the sacrifice in the solidarity that everyone else is pledging to us. And that is what is different this time. No contracts, no scripts. No contracts, no scripts. Laura Jackman's credits include the TV adaptation of Get Shorty and Netflix's Grace and Frankie. Michael Shulman is a staff writer for The New Yorker, and this is The New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do, and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. They are one of the largest recipients of NIH funding. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute has been making one advanced cancer discovery after another for over 75 years. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, what we do here changes lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Ever since Samantha Irby emerged as a breakout star from the blogosphere, readers have loved her for being an unvarnished truth-teller. On her blog and in her best-selling books of essays, Irby exposes a lot, from her battles with Crohn's disease to her addiction to QVC. My passion is to truly make, like, um... 
dirtbag, slacker, black lady stuff because there is not enough, like, you know, this black lady doesn't have ambition art in the world. And I just, I'm going to try and get it out there. Recently, Irby made the leap into writing for television on shows like Hulu's Shrill and HBO's Sex and the City reboot, and just like that. Doreen Sanfelix, a staff writer for The New Yorker, sees Irby as the ideal chronicler of what she calls the malaise of the millennial condition. When Doreen sat down to talk with Samantha Irby, it was three days into the Writers Guild strike. What changes have happened in the industry that have caused, you know, writers to... Um, take the stand that they're taking. I think the biggest change, and we all know it because it's changed our lives so much, is Mm. streaming and the way, and sort of the opacity that the producers and studios work under that, like, you don't even know the ways you're being screwed, right? You just know that, like, your checks are smaller. Um, but <laughs> the other day I got a residual check from, it was based on my episode from, and just like that. So big network. We know a lot of people watched it. Uh, my residual check was $40. <laughs> it's like, you hear about like people who work on, who worked on like law and order, right? Like right. things that are like so syndicated and they're having a great, they haven't written anything in 20 years, but they're having a great life off those residual checks. That is not possible for writers right now. And I think what makes me feel the, the worst is like there are like young, super young people in this industry trying to like, cobbled together like enough writing jobs to like have writing be their only job and they can't do that i was reading a thing about how um this person i can't remember who it was this writer the day they got nominated for it the day they found out they got nominated for an emmy they were in target applying for a job and it's like we we get that that is the reality. Like, I worked in, like, customer service for, like, 15 years, right? Right. But I feel like when I was making $15 an hour, like, bagging donuts, my boss wasn't making $200 million <laughs> that she refused to share with me. That would be a very like, weird um, <laughs> donut shop. <laughs> yes. It was like... But, you know, so, like, the disparity between you and your regular boss is one thing, right? It's like, maybe they have a newer version of the same car you drive. But the difference between the writer's take-home pay and the executive's take-home pay is bonkers. Because, you know, like, Hollywood is weird if they have their way... You would just move to L.A. immediately, Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm. in meetings every five minutes, uh, never sleep, always be hustling. But I think, like, one of the things about coming into this work at 43, I do not have the stamina to hustle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, I'll have one job, and when that job ends... I'll wait till someone asks me to do another job. So I think all of, like, my fake curmudgeonliness and, like, physical distance has kept me 
feeling like the same person. Right, right. Even though, like, Cynthia Nixon texted me. You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) that's her. She's fancy, and she lives in my phone. That's not me. I'd be curious to hear about, you know, how being in the space of the writer's room, where it's a collaborative environment, kind of works with or maybe works against your very much one-person kind of essay writing that you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, okay, so I think that TV writing is hard, but also is like maybe the easiest because you have other people to bounce things off of. So like in my own work, I have complete confidence in my brain, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, this is what I'm going to write about. This is how I'm going to form it. Like, this is the format that feels right, like a list or or whatever. Um, and then I write it, and then I fix it with my editor, and then it's good. I, and I feel good about that. Like, having a book out in the world, I feel good and confident in what's in it. Mm-hmm. With TV, because I don't fully understand TV and I haven't been doing it long enough to feel like I know what I'm doing. I appreciate the collaboration because I think it 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 all helps to keep me from looking stupid, which is like my biggest fear is like looking like an idiot. So it is it's nice to to have someone like if I throw out an, an insane pitch to have someone be like, well, that wouldn't work because this, or right. an audience doesn't, you know, doesn't like that. Or, I mean, even something as basic as like, you know, we have to keep this thread going throughout the episode and you forgot it. Also, like, the writer's room is just like the beginning. Then it's like the showrunner, right. and then it goes to the network. The first time, I saw an episode of television I wrote. There were lots of stuff. There was lots of stuff on the screen that I didn't write. And what episode was that? Was it in Works It was Shrill. It was the the pool party episode of Shrill. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, when when I wrote the script, and you write from an outline that kind of everybody puts together, there was no fight with the boyfriend in my episode. Hmm. And I was like, good. Like, we don't need any men. Um, <laughs> and then I see the episode and there's a scene I didn't write. And that that just sort of, and I wasn't like offended or embarrassed or anything. Right. It's just like, oh yeah, okay, that's how it works. What I turn in then goes through so many hands that like, it's it kind of... I mean, it resembles what I wrote, but maybe not. Jokes get punched up and scenes get taken out, like, for time. So I think with TV, I enjoy the collaboration only because it it further helps me, like, let go of control. But in TV, you're just going to get your feelings hurt over and over and over if you, like, stay married to literally anything you put in a script. Coming into this conversation, I had this idea that Sam Irby and I would begin by talking about her memoir and then talk seriously about writer's rooms and and just like that. And of course, all that went out the window as soon as she began to speak. 
a real sticking spot for me, or like a real, not stick, a real sensitive spot for me, is I have always felt, and, and it gets worse, I think, as my career gets better mm-hmm. with not having a college degree, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just am, it makes me feel especially with writing, you know how writers are. They're like, what MFA program did you go to? And I'm like, oh, I went to high school. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even have a bachelor's degree. I certainly don't have an MFA. And like people who are all chummy from their grad school programs and, you know, they exclude. And then you add to it um, that I write a lot of filth and and it makes people take me less seriously. I I just, so because I have thought of myself as like undereducated, hmm. um, whenever anyone has criticized my choice in book to read, I just, am, I have the feeling of like, oh, I guess I didn't know any better that this was a bad thing to right. consume. Right. And I don't want to feel bad because some random person wanted to make me feel bad. Since I started doing I Like It, which is, like, let's say you're reading uh, Gone Girl, which is one of my favorite books. And I don't think it's trashy, but some people do. Um, And someone says, like, oh, that book is bad for women. First of all, am I going to give a feminist lecture off the top of my head to some asshole who just wants to be rude to me? No, I, I, I'm physically incapable. But what I can do is go, oh, well, I like this book. And then the person does not expect you to say that. They're basically standing there waiting for you to apologize to them for liking something that they don't deem worthy. And then it gets a little awkward and then I just keep doubling down. I just keep going, I like it. Right. And it has been, it's just it's a tiny, handy tool to just like get people off you. I feel like right now, and I don't know if it's social media or just a general hostility in the air, but like everyone is just like waiting to judge you right but for something that doesn't matter you know what i mean like nobody's seen me kicking a puppy right or yelling at a kid i'm those are the kinds of things i'd be worried about like someone finding out about me not that i am deep into all the real housewives, you know? (laughs) And, like, the fact that I also, this is a thing with you as a critic, it's like, I know you, I trust you. If you say, everything you say about a thing, I'm like, I know this person, I trust her, I believe what she says about this show, I trust her analysis, like, the whole thing. Joe Blow on the street, like, they're not a trained critic. They don't know how to consume things in a critical way. They're as stupid as I am. I'm going to feel bad because they, like, don't want me to read John Grisham. No, I refuse. I refuse. There are so many things to feel bad about, and I do. Taking back the my taste, yeah. <laughs> defending my taste, is a thing that is worth it 
to me. I'm going to start standing up for the things that make me happy. Yeah. I love Billions. Billions I mean, is... I watch Succession, too. But they're but both... Billions is good. Right. And they both are doing, like, actually very different things. Um, and it makes me wonder, like, what your relationship is to the real fever that got, like, you know, created when And Just Like That came out. Because there was so, and you talk about this in the, in the essay collection as well, but there was a real, like, you know, this is our baby. You have to do right by our baby, even though you guys had a different mandate that you were pursuing. Even as a Sex and the City, like, bona fide super fan, I, I was not ready for, like, the fire hose of opinions and also, and, like, the bad, you know, reviews and recaps or whatever. Like, I truly, I am the last name on the writer list. Like, I decide nothing. I had to un- I had to unsubscribe from people's newsletters. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I was listening to <laughs> this NPR podcast. It was, I was in the shower, so I didn't see it was going to the next episode, which was about, and just like that. So I'm listening on my little shower speaker, because <laughs> I'm fancy. And at one point, like, one of the women on the panel is like, were there any Black people in the room? And the host is like, you know, Samantha Irby was in there. She's Black. And the person says, well, all skin folk ain't <gasps> kin folk. Wow. When I tell you I almost fell out of the shower, I'm like, that is the kind, like, okay, I am not Black enough to this person who has no idea who I am, and I didn't bring any uh, changing Blackness into the room. I have betrayed the entire race by not taking over the show and casting all Black people. And it's like, when people go to things like that, it's like, what can you do? What can you do? Right. right. I can't call that girl and be like, oh, so actually, I'm a Black Panther. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, there's, there's nothing to do. So it was so overwhelming. It was so overwhelming. You were so important in your anticipation of what body positivity did to a lot of people in terms of their, you know, actually making much more grotesque their relationships to their bodies because it mm-hmm. did not allow them to have honesty about yeah. how it is that they feel about, like, living in this meat sack. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> one of your pieces that I love is your profile of Lizzo in time because here's this person who is so, as you had, you know, really beautifully articulated this idea of body negativity, which is kind of mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek, but also very mm-hmm. real. And then there there you are being set against, you know, just like the absolute absolute patron saint of body positivity. And I love that like little tension there. Yeah. I, that was tough for me because, and I wonder, I sometimes I vacillate between like, am I jealous or is what they're doing wrong, right? Hmm. Because I would never be in my underwear uh, in any photograph ever, right? Like, I would never, I would never be photographed with a tank top on. That is not the relationship I have with my body. And I have no problem with 
other people who do. Like, no outward problem, but I do feel like some resentment because I'm not that way, right? I'm like, these people are out in bikinis and they're having a great time. I cannot do that. I hate her, you know, not hate, but you know what I mean? Right. So when uh, when they approached me about talking to Lizzo, I was just like, I, oh, like, I'm not going to turn it down. It's Time Magazine, but also... So this was a, a profile of of Lizzo at that time. Yes. Reach out yeah, to it was do. their 100 notable the, something. Something like that. Most the the important, most important people what, in the world. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm certainly not going to inject a whole lot of, but you can't love your body all the time, right? You know, Time Magazine was not wanting that from me. And I still, I just, I feel like if like if no one talks about the stuff that's bad or the stuff they don't like or that they woke up this morning and their shoulder hurts and they wish they had a different body, it's like there has to be space for all of that. The you go girl of it all, and this is not about Lizzo, but just in generally, is so hard, especially when you consider like accessibility for very fat people, right? Medical care for very fat people. I think that's a thing that we lose in the body positivity of it all is, you know, you see somebody with a burrito belly you know, in a bathing suit, and it's like, oh, that's so brave. And like, great, maybe it is, but uh, why are airplane seats so small? And why, you know, why are theaters, like, made for, <laughs> like, people in the 1920s mm-hmm. or whatever? It's like... Vanity sizing I, is another thing, right? Oh, my God, it's so real. And I just... I think sometimes that that people think like the struggle is over because we see fat women in uh, bathing suits on our feeds and like Old Navy is making, you know, 4X or whatever. And I think like with those kind of, with putting the lipstick on the pig, as it were, no pun intended, is great. I love the visuals. I went to Target and saw my girl in one of their jeans ads on the wall. I was very excited. But then you can't, like, buy the size clothes she wears in the store because they don't stock the fat clothes. So then, as a fat person, you got to remember what you liked. Go home. See if they make it in your size. Get it. Have it fit weird. Send it back. (laughs) You know what I mean? It just is like... (laughs) It just... I don't... my, My Truly, my only beef with the, like, love yourself of it all is that you're you're trying to in a society that hates your guts. I was listening to I don't even know some podcast and the host was talking about how like you know white men are the last people it's accept- acceptable to make jokes about and I was like <laughs> okay sir there are fat jokes everywhere in everything that you watch all the time. You're there's no warning. You'll be watching a soap opera and then somebody will 
like say something. It's like it's in the culture. It's people on the street will say things to you. It's just like I don't want everything to be boiled down to like whether you're okay wearing shorts outside in the summer. Right. Right. Because that's like the least of the issues. Sam, it was so great to talk with you. So this really made my day. Oh, you are the best. Oh, uh, when am, when are we getting a Doreen St. Felix book? Wait, what? What did you say? Sorry, the feed is dropping <laughs> out. <laughs> the New Yorker's Doreen St. Felix speaking with writer Samantha Irby. Irby's new collection of essays is called Quietly Hostile. HBO's And Just Like That returns for a second season in June. I'm David Remnick, and that's the New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Ingo Fenn and Putabuele and Louie Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, Avery Keatley, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Imputubuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Michael May, David Gable, Meher Bhatia, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.